welcome back to our what are we at four four yeah we only yes. have two left hour four preparing for the unexpected live with james green and myself here from the continuity and resilience today conference in toronto and uh this our sponsor is the resilience think tank yes the resilience think tank uh is dedicated to providing independent guidance and research to the risk and resilience industry. Alex, I just realized before we went on the air this morning, we said we were going to introduce ourselves every hour. And uh, you introducing us just now, I don't think we did that the last two hours, but that's okay. That's I know okay. who you are. You know who I am. Laurel Hardy. Laurel Hardy. Mutt and Jeff. So here we are. <laughs> so if you've been following along uh, for three hours, four hours now, one, thank you. Two, I'm concerned about you that you've been watching for four <laughs> hours. But if you didn't know who we are, now you know. <laughs> so Alex, let's go. Uh, the last hour, I asked you about your keynote speech in London. So then, of course, we spoke for 30 minutes about resilience. Yeah, we, uh, we jumped all over the place there. So let's go back to... London. You were in London. I was in London. Uh, I haven't been to Europe since before COVID. The last time I was in Europe was February of 2020. I was in uh, Paris for a friend's wedding. And thankfully, our trip, I guess, ended about four or five days before France closed its borders. Wow. Or else I would probably speak more French than I do now. But I don't know about you. So I haven't been to Europe since February of 2020. When was the last time you were in uh, either in UK or Europe? Uh, the UK would have been the fall of 2019. Okay. So what, what differences? Did you see any differences traveling in Europe now compared to 2019 post-COVID or pre-World War III? Or were there any, any changes, anything you saw that that jumped out to you uh you know to be honest there wasn't a lot of difference and i think it's because a lot of people were are under the belief or perception or feel as though covid is over so there were as a lot of people walking around with masks on um there you could still see um and maybe this is one of the differences uh stations where you can wash your hands or uh, sanitizer you know we're, we're in places but overall i think as i walked through waterloo train station in london on wednesday november first uh, sorry tuesday november 1st would have been looked the same as it would have back in 2019 uh, lots of people going back and forth uh, very few masks uh, i it would have been interesting to see what it looked like during the pandemic Yes, and unfortunately, because we're over here, I wouldn't have experienced that. So that that was the the big difference. Sitting on a train, it didn't matter. People were would sit wherever they wanted. There was no separation, um, except you know you didn't want to sit by the crying baby. Yeah, That's <laughs> Which, true. <laughs> um, and I, I think that was really the biggest difference. The the cabs are the same because the cabs have always had. The, the, divider. Uh, the, yeah. the divider. So there wasn't really a change there. Went to the hotels. Um, half of the hotels didn't have a screen at least because I was visiting family. I was also staying in other places. Okay. Um, and most of those didn't have a divider. 
so that was gone. So it, it seemed as though any kind of trace of COVID of what's been happening over the last two and a half years to three years, for the most part, was disappearing or gone. What about you? What did you see? You, you, you know, one thing I noticed in London that jumped out to me and it just showed me, uh, you know, we're all a product of our environment. So as you know, I live in Florida. And as most people know, uh, the government of Florida decided pretty much for three years that COVID didn't really exist. Right. So we didn't close uh, businesses we were open for business as usual. Tourism was at sky high numbers. Um, and so as a result of that, I didn't see personally see a lot of businesses close because businesses didn't lose revenue. And uh, walking around Piccadilly in some areas of London, there were a lot of businesses to me that were closed. And it was really interesting perception uh, speaking to other people, I was like, wow, a lot of businesses are closed. And they're like, no, not not more so than anywhere else. Uh, but living where I live, it was it was a big number. And it just kind of it made it interesting, you know, for me to, again, we talked about the last hour, reflecting, to self-reflect on being a product of, of your environment and how uh, COVID shaped different societies. Right. So I noticed for me, there was uh, a lot of places closed. But yeah, to your point, uh, social distancing has gone out the window. Uh, I certainly see more masks now than I did in 2019. Um, you know, traveling in Asia prior to COVID, you would see masks. You would never see them. I would never see them in Western countries. Yeah. See masks here and there uh but what i mean what would you say less than two percent maybe yeah, kind of like this yeah. conference would you say yeah very five percent of people here two percent of people here have yeah five percent would be pushing it maybe two percent yeah not a lot of people uh, wearing masks and it's you know what i hope to see with the mask is that it removes is again living in florida in the united states where masks became a political issue and not a medical issue very strange to me and i'm hoping that mask wearing is normalized going forward because it always made sense to me in in japan or in south korea i have a cold i could walk around and give it to everyone or i could wear a mask and not give it to you for a day or two. I always appreciated that. I always liked that. Uh, we'll see if that continues. But yeah, for me, London, like you said, uh, the cabs, the hotels, the restaurants, uh, people's homes, everything was, um, it felt just pretty much back to 2019 with the exception of, like I said, a lot of businesses in touristy areas yeah. closed, which makes sense because uh, how many tourists were in Piccadilly in 2021? Yeah. I, I would lot. argue not many. Yeah. They, I, I don't know if you noticed, though, in airports, because obviously you've been traveling just within the last couple of days, but even with the UK, in the airports, uh, there were a lot more people with masks. Yes. Um, for whatever reason, because some of these people, you just know, as soon as they got off the airplane, the mask came off. But as soon as they stepped in the airport, the mask went off. 
So it's kind of, okay, why, why don't you just wear it all the time? You know, the same, you catch the same cold outside the airport you can inside. However, I, I guess it's just a perception some people have, you know, because in an airport, it's bringing so many people together from all around the world, wear a mask to protect themselves. And all the workers had masks, uh, all the staff, uh, the shopkeepers, the serving staff, anybody, everybody had a mask. Yes. And I wore masks mine but as soon as i stepped out of the airport here in pearson when i got home none of the cab drivers uh half of the staff uh, didn't have it at least the ones that worked outside i mean not not inside but outside staff nobody had a mask and you could actually see people to rip, rip off their masks as soon as they stepped outside so it, it's kind of um it's a strange mix of what people are thinking right now. You know, uh, in a big group like this, a lot of people aren't wearing a mask. Go into an airport, same amount of people, everyone's got a mask. Yes. But the same risk, to use your vernacular, the same risk is still there. Yes. Yeah, there's no... The, the risk and science have gone out the window. It's very interesting. It's very interesting to watch. Yeah, it, it is. It's rather interesting. So just before we started talking, um, we got an interesting message on our phones. We did get an interesting message. We were supposed to lead off with this this hour, and I completely forgot about it. So thank you, Alex. What did we get on our phones? Well, what's happening here in, I believe it's across Canada, just at different dates. But I don't know if people are familiar with um, the Amber Alert system. I don't know if you call it something different down in the U.S. In the U.S., yeah, we call it that. Uh, Amber Alert System. So it goes out to, the message goes out to a community or general area when there is uh, something to keep your eyes open for, you know, a, a lost child or something like that. Well, the government now here in Canada has taken that a step further to issue alerts when there are severe weather uh, and um, other severe incidents that impact communities. And they've been testing this across the country. And today was Ontario. So it, it was interesting. Uh, does it, do you have the time on there? Yep, 12.55 p.m. At 12.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, everybody's phone went off here, <laughs> including our own. And everyone says, what's that? What, what, what is that? And it was they were testing the alert system. So if there was a major storm here, um, I know we've been talking about snow here, but it really wasn't major compared to you know, what it really is. It was just the first snowstorm here, um, but they send out alerts. Um, did this one say anything specific by any chance? Because I actually didn't read it. So. Yes, it's in English and French. I will spare the audience. The French version says emergency alert. This is a test of the Ontario alert ready system. I really like this second sentence because anytime you even send out a test message, as we all know, people freak out. So the second sentence says, there is no danger to your health or safety. I love that that's in there. It goes on to say, if this was an actual emergency, you would now hear instructions for protecting yourself. For more information about emergency alerts, please visit alertready.ca. So that was our test today. Yes. To make sure that all worked. And considering the number of phones that we heard go off, I think it was quite successful. Yeah, and I find it interesting that it wasn't just carrier-based because, again, I have a United States-based mm -hmm. phone. I have a U.S. carrier, uh, and I got the message, Yeah, which I love. 
to, to my knowledge, it's for any carrier um, that has service here. Okay. So anybody, um, you can bring your phone in. You would obviously log on to get you know, some signal here while you're here. So whoever it is, everybody gets their uh, the message when they're here. Yeah, and like Alex said, it was a little unnerving. We were in between segments talking about the next segment, and then every single phone, probably 75 people in the room at the time wrapping up lunch, every single phone at the same time went off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, so now I've got something to look forward to at our next snowstorm. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So what else are we going to talk about today? There was a couple of other things we wanted to touch on. Let's talk about a non-controversial topic, something nice and light. Let's talk about Elon Musk and Twitter. So I want to talk about, we're not going to talk about if you think Elon should have bought Twitter or taken Twitter private or anything around that. But what I saw last week when Twitter temporarily rolled out Twitter Blue, which was in the United States, if you paid $8 a month, you could get a little check next to your name. You could also change your name to whatever you wanted. Um, Historically, Twitter verification, you had to be famous for some capacity, right? Or you had to be an official government agency. And I've really seen over the last five or six years, a lot of emergency management services in the United States use Twitter and Facebook as their primary methods of communicating warnings and emergencies. And as we saw all these fake accounts last week, all these people who were verified changed their account name to Elon Musk. It got me thinking, what if, you know, what if somebody changed it to, I live, I used to live in Pinellas County, Pinellas County EMS has a Twitter page. What if someone created a fake one? Mm-hmm and said, evacuate now, there's a tsunami, there's a hurricane, there's Godzilla, there's whatever. Uh, It's gonna confuse and scare a lot of people. The other thing I think is gonna happen, some of these emergency management and first responder organizations are gonna say, because of this platform, uh, this confusion, we're gonna leave this platform. So what do you think, I wanna get your thoughts, Alex, so over the last five years, certain parts of the world we've conditioned people twitter is the fastest best source of official information now that might be in upheaval agreed uh the the same thing here with emergency management systems here and police departments Uh, i follow the rcmp on twitter i follow my local police on twitter so if, if somebody fakes those accounts and starts spreading information, like the examples you just had, they can create panic. It's a whole new way of, you know, it's not just disseminating misinformation. It's almost like a terrorist attack, you know, because it can create the same kind of panic, the same kind of uh, responses from people. Um, if they find out that uh, there's an active shooter somewhere, well, now, uh, the, if it's at school, uh, you know, and it's not an active shooter at all, there's actually nothing going on, but parents now are, could be panicking. Uh, police could be responding to things they don't know because how, how could you ignore something like that? If you're a police officer or EMS, you know, there's someone in danger, someone has been shot, someone is hurt, 
your police officer, your EMS, you're bound, you know, to to go to that situation and want to help. Could it be a setup now, you know, for for something else? You know, people with nefarious means, and unfortunately, we see that there are people with the you know nefarious means these days. So it, it I, I think there's a big danger right now because he got rid of half his staff, you know, yes. and half the staff that actually looked after the traffic and you know, identified misinformation and you know, uh, did their best to get rid of it. Now it's a free-for-all. Anything could be, be said and could, could be happening now. And the danger that that puts people in, organizations in, um, and the misinformation that can go out there can cause just as much damage as the misinformation beforehand. But it could be worse now. Who knows what could happen? Absolutely. I've just uh, I've just pulled up a Twitter page now. I'm not going to give the handle because I don't want to spread it. But I uh, did a quick search while Alex was chatting there. And on appearance, you can see this looks like, to me, the official Twitter page of a, a certain fire department. Mm -hmm. But when I click through on that link, this is not. No, it's not. You but can... it's even got, it says X you know, fire service, active incidents. It has uh, date, times, who was dispatched, where uh, a casual observance, and this account was created in 2008, so it's not like it was created a month ago. Uh, uh, if you were quickly looking for information during an emergency, I could see how somebody, including myself, could misinterpret this as an official government page. But like I said, when I click through this link, my... Uh, my Mac fee pops up and says, Hey, dummy, <laughs> go back. That's a different hope all ye enter. <laughs> so you would have no idea. This is concerning to me that, yeah. you know, here's, so we're not just talking hyperbole. Here's, and I, this took me 12 seconds to find. Yeah. I just typed in, you know, fire department. Yeah. And you know, the, the information that that could convey could send even, even responders to the wrong spot, taking them away from uh, real situations. But now how are you going to tell? You know, if you are, to your point, if you are in a rush to try and find information on something that's going on and you land on a page like that, yeah. you're going to think that's true because part of you is in a bit of a panic fear mode. So you're trying to get information as fast as you can and the information you get is wrong. Yeah, and we talk a lot in our industry about muscle memory and you know conditioning so with a platform like twitter where for 10 years now a blue check from a fire department means it's legitimate now it's not you're conditioning people to do the wrong thing uh it reminds me of in in the neighborhood i live in right now as traffic has increased they've started to put in roundabouts but, and there, there's a whole nother topic, but what I, from a conditioning standpoint, right now, there's this roundabout near my house where, because they haven't built the other roads yet, you don't have to look for oncoming traffic. The roundabout is just basically me going north and you going south. Okay. So as people are getting used to this roundabout, they're never looking to yield because there's no one they have to yield to. Now, what concerns me? So over time, you condition people, okay, the roundabout to me now just means slow down. Doesn't mean yield. Doesn't mean anybody's in the roundabout. When they connect those other roads in six to nine months, 
what's going to happen? Those people, those people who have never had to yield and look are going to get in an accident. And that's what I worry when you have all of us. And it's not just Twitter. We all uh, use social media for emergency response, for emergency comms. And if you mess with that system or change that system without educating people, you're going to get some uh, erroneous information. And the other thing I worry about is with these prank accounts, at some point, people will tune out. It's just like the mass notification systems. I love mass notification systems. They're vital for community response. They're vital for organizational response, but we've seen some communities and some organizations take it too far. If you're getting a message that says there's a book sale at the library, or you're getting a message saying there's cookies in the break room, at some point you tune that out. And then when you get the message that says there's a fire, you need to evacuate or there's a shooter, maybe you've already opted out. <clears throat> yep. Uh, and there's no way of knowing after a while, is, is that a real message? Is that a fake message? Everything after a while, you'll take the, the, the path of least resistance. Yep. And the least resistance is uh, just ignore it. And, be, you know, that's a great with the phone because phishing's gotten so sophisticated. I now, I belong to a local organization and they, the way they send out their messages, it looks like a phishing link. Because it doesn't say who it's from. It's like a chopped half sentence with a link that's actually valid. But now we're all, I just delete them because I never know one of these days it's going to be the wrong one yeah. and I've been hacked. Well, it, it's interesting you brought that up. By the way, we forgot to turn on our on-air on sign. Well, so. <laughs> well everyone's... Uh... That's okay. Uh, it's interesting you just brought that, uh, that point up about um, uh, phishing uh, and you know Twitter and what's valid, what what's not valid. Right now, I'm working for an organization who has uh, sends out you know fake phishing emails from their uh, security department, you know, to test everyone, make sure that we're we're doing the right thing. You know, we're not clicking on links we shouldn't. Uh, I've got my hand slapped uh, twice because I've identified two emails that were actually valid, containing links. But because I don't know who the vendor is or the sender, because I've never dealt with them, I went, well, I don't know. That's coming from external. I've never heard of this company. So, Delete. yeah, so I, I identified it. Click a button that says identify it as fish, fishing. Send it to going, no, you shouldn't have, this is a, a valid vendor. You shouldn't be, uh, you should be paying attention to their emails. And going, well, how would I know? If it's a vendor I've never dealt with that suddenly sends an email through, now I, I, I see an email come through and it's, well, do I report it and get my hand slapped? Or what? What do I do now? You know, and it's, it, I see the, the validity in wanting to make sure that people understand the difference between a valid email and a phishing email. I have a Voice America story about that too. Uh, but uh, at the same time, you can push that too far where people will just start ignoring it. Because now exactly. it's just like, well, I, I don't know who it is. I'll just ignore it. And it could be a valid email and I could be missing out on something now. Yeah, I think this. It's. I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Are you in a culture where you're allowed to speak up? Yeah. Uh, if I were a CISO as a cybersecurity 
professional, I would rather have people over reporting and clicking that phishing email too often than not often enough. Because worst case with a legit email, I can just say to the person, no, it's valid, you're okay. But like you said, for you, you, you know, getting your hand slapped, you're now conditioning Alex that, hey, don't, don't click that phishing button anymore. So yeah. click the link, see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Roll well, the then, dice. Then I'll get both hands slapped That's really right. hard. Because <laughs> with my luck, third time will be charmed and I will have hit, you know, something I really shouldn't have hit. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, let's spend some time talking about the phishing email tests that organizations do. Because to me, they're, they're similar to simulation tests and business continuity where we actually test a process. But more often than not, what have we seen in the news? These terrible links where it's like, oh, how many companies have we seen had to apologize for phishing exercises gone bad where they said like, oh, you're getting a raise of 25%. Click on this link. That really happened. Or another organization said, oh, you're being laid off tomorrow. Click on this link to find out more. And when you clicked on both links, you got in trouble because it was a phishing exercise. And you have these organizations traumatizing their employees and creating a lot of distrust. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that part right there. You, 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 you want your employees to work with you, but you're traumatizing them, yeah. I think is a, is a great way of saying it, especially with things, uh, you know, you're, you've been laid off, click on this link. You know, you don't do that in general. You don't take phishing emails out of it. You don't, you shouldn't be doing those kind of things. <laughs> well, yeah, it reminds me of the U.S. version of The Office where uh, Dwight Schrute decides to hold a fire drill by faking that the office is actually on fire. And all this, all these horrible things happen. Now that's a sitcom, but it's meant to be absurd. Like he, he put smoke in, the, in one of the rooms. He heated up the handles of the doors so that people thought they were on fire. You see that on a, a TV show and you're like, of course that's absurd and of course that's horrible. But I wonder why then when it comes to cybersecurity exercises, we say, hey, let's do something emotionally traumatic or way over, you've won the lottery, you've gotten a raise, you've gotten fired. Um, like why, why do we think that's acceptable? Because again, if we did that in our line of work, if I set this table on fire right now, to test the resilience and fire response of these uh, attendees and sponsors, I'm pretty sure I would never be allowed back at this conference or in this conference center. True. That seems evident that that's a really bad risk to take. Would, would part of that also be on us though? What do you think, like being logical? Would we logically ever get an email that says, you, you, you are getting a 25% raise tomorrow? Logically, should we, take a step back and just think about it? Yes, and here's why. <laughs> Going back to Twitter, as you mentioned, uh, two weeks ago, they had 7,500 employees and they decided they were gonna cut that in half. So Thursday night, one Thursday night, they sent an email to all employees. We are laying off half our employees. If you have a job, by 9 a.m. tomorrow, you will get an email to your Twitter work email. If you do not have a job, 
by 9 a.m. tomorrow, you will get an email to your personal email with your separation paperwork. So I would argue if that's how they announced that half their employees were going to be gone, if you live through that, why wouldn't you think maybe you were getting a raise or a layoff through an email? Because that's unfortunately a company, that's how they chose to notify 7,500 people. Hey, you know, in the next 12 hours, try to go to sleep, keep refreshing your email and you'll either get the work email or the personal email. And that's how they chose to, um, announce their layoffs. I'm glad I don't work for Twitter. Yeah, so I apologize for all the Twitter bashing, <laughs> yeah, but I was trying to think of an example where, again, I would think you would see that on a sitcom or in a movie about a horrible boss or a dysfunctional organization, but that you see these large companies when they do mass sudden layoffs are saying, check your email. Uh, what was the way back in the day with Enron, who was their audit firm? Was it Arthur Anderson? I think it was Arthur Anderson. Yeah. So when uh, Arthur Anderson went bankrupt and they had to do the same thing and they had to lay off half of their 100,000 employees or 75,000 employees, they basically said, you're going to get a voicemail to your work email or your work phone back in the desk phone day by 7 a.m. tomorrow. And that it'll be an automated message that either says you have a job, come in at business as usual, or you don't have a job, go to this conference room to get your paperwork. You know, that's, that, that just got me thinking. That's another example of the disconnect between people and technology. Because there was a time, if you were getting laid off, even if it was a large group of people, it would be done in person. Yes. Um, either the CEO or your manager would have everybody there saying, you know, we're, we're not doing this line of business anymore or we're whatever the case may be. Because I, I went through that myself. Yes. And it was more personal. The, the, the CIO, well, I forget what his title was, but I know he was in charge of technology. But okay. He, uh, he brought everybody in one by one. You know, you kind of went in one way and out another so that, you know, <laughs> so that nobody got to tell everyone what was going on but it was more personal it was easier to, to uh, sure I didn't like it but it was easier to handle to know that I was getting a personal message and now we use technology you know we're supposed to be make technology more interactive and, and personal and yet we're using it for impersonal things like you're you're fired yeah you know you can say laid off all you want it's fired yeah, I yeah. don't have a job anymore, and it yeah. wasn't my choice. Yeah, and, and so it, it's kind of interesting that um, Twitter or, or email or whatever the case may be is now used uh, to kind of something to hide behind. Yes. You know, I, I will use these applications, these devices to communicate this bad information so that I'm not seen anymore. Makes it, makes, makes it even more uh, traumatizing. Yeah. So again, I guess this is the harp on Twitter hour. That email that said, you know, in the next 12 hours, you'll get this email or that email as, as an example of what you were chatting about. The email wasn't signed by any person. It just said at the bottom, Twitter. It wasn't even the head of HR or the, you know, usually, like you said, the CEO, CIO, EIEIO, somebody's name. There wasn't even a name 
on there. And, you know, we, we can use technology for our benefit, but more often than not, it seems when companies have to make tough decisions that affect people, they use, as your point, they use the technology to hide behind to make it even uh, less personal. Yeah, and yet, what do all organizations, just about everybody says, is their most important asset? Employees. Yeah, but when push comes to shove in situations like this, obviously, it's not. They take the person, the person uh, out of the, the whole equation, that relationship. And really, in the end, at the end of the day, that's going to hurt your your organization because if you lay lay off three thousand two hundred and fifty people you're going to have 3,250 people uh, negatively talking about your organization. You're hurting your brand by doing that too. That's one thing that always confuses me. I'm sure we've all seen it on social media uh, the last couple of months, the last year where someone says, you know, today is my last day. My department, business unit, group, company has been laid off. And then people are like, oh, I'm so thankful. This is such a great place. Uh, and maybe I just need to be a better person. But I've always found it interesting. And this will lead into another topic I have for you, Alex. Like people who thank their employer as they're getting fired. Uh, I guess I've always found that confusing. Uh, I've only been fired once. And that was actually at a, uh, uh, I won't say the name, but a, a large consulting firm uh, because they ran out of basically business. Okay. So they, they, yeah. It was after Y2K. So there was a, a lot of business before Y2K and uh, there wasn't a lot afterwards, shall we say. So um, they let the whole three quarters of the, the group go. And that was the only time I was fired. And I, I can't say that uh, I, I, I think I knew it was coming anyway, because obviously I wasn't busy. So it, it was to me, it kind of, you know, well, thank you for the opportunity. You know, I learned a few new tricks while I was here, not here for a long time, but I, I learned a few new things. But it's also come down to, you know, don't burn a bridge. Because as much as I can complain about that company if I want to, they can also turn around and not say anything bad against me because they're not allowed to, um, but they can not, uh, if, if someone calls, you know, hey, would you hire Alex? They would just say, oh, I, I'm not going to answer that question. Yeah. Well, you know, that's their way of getting back at me. So I, I think it's always good to keep that door open or keep not burn that bridge. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not advocating burning the bridge. I just get confused with these gushing LinkedIn posts of people thanking the company that just laid them off. Uh, so you had something on the list here we talked about prior to broadcasting, which I thought might somehow segue into this. Let's talk about quiet quitting. You wrote, you know, oh, what yeah. is it? Why? See, I'm actually actually going somewhere this hour. <laughs> Believe it or not, Alex is like, what is happening right now? Why are we talking about this? But let's talk about quiet quitting because I think it's applicable to our industry and to a lot of professionals and our colleagues in this industry. Yeah, quiet quitting, uh, it, it, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the uh, practice of people not working beyond their time frame. So if they work nine to five, five o'clock, they shut down, that's it, they don't 
do anything else. They don't take work home. They don't check email when they're at home. They don't uh, respond to anything, uh, whether it be a text, uh, email, or whatever the case, or a phone call. They don't do anything. They start right at nine o'clock. They stick to the their job performance outline. You know, if it says you shall do A, B, and C, that's it. They don't do anything else. Um, so any manager that comes across and to use business continuity, hey, I need your input to help create this continuity plan. Well, that's not part of my, my role, right? And that's kind of quiet quitting what people are doing. I find it so interesting that doing the job you're paid to do is considered a form of quitting. Well, so the terminology <laughs> is very interesting to me. Well, I think what it is, it's, I, I, I'm not sure where the, the term came from, quiet quitting, but it, it reminds me of a different way of saying work-life balance. Yeah. So I, I, I really don't know where quiet quitting came from. But the, the backlash from, you know, predominantly baby boomers and certain segments of society against quiet quitting I think they don't look at the reality of the culture of the company that the person is working in. Every one of us has had great jobs and I guarantee every one of us has had bad jobs. And if you have a bad job and a truly terrible culture and a truly bad boss and the sink, the ship is sinking and everyone's leaving. And if everyone out there tells me that with that job, They've never just done what's required from them. I don't, I don't agree. Like, I think it's a way I've worked in companies where you're like, man, this is terrible. Everyone's <laughs> leaving. Everyone's getting fired. Nothing makes sense here. I did not do my job. But to your point, I'm not up at 6 a.m. checking emails. I'm not working on stuff till 10 p.m. or on weekends. I'm going to do what the company has paid me to do because a lot of times in that instance, they've showed me, we don't care about you mm -hmm. above and beyond your productivity at this point in time. So then for me, quiet quitting is when it becomes transactional. I'm going to do my job. You're going to get my work. I'm going to take your money and that's it. It becomes truly transactional. And a lot of these companies that are lamenting quiet quitting have brought it upon themselves. You've seen a lot of organizations the last three years have gone to work from home and hybrid because they had to. And I find it interesting how organizations have decided to shift back. Some organizations do it very thoughtfully. And they're like, hey, these certain business processes need people in the office. Or you'll see they'll say, you know, I know you're remote, uh, we'd like to phase that out over the next six, nine months. But then you've seen some companies who are like, no, nope, everybody back in the office Monday. Yeah. Why? Because you are telling your employees that it's transactional and you're going to have your employees quiet quit because people are going to realize, you know, and, and I have a client now, uh, they're now required to be in the office two days a week but it's not the same two days. So I'll come in and I'm still on a Zoom with Alex, who's at his house. And to me in that case, why did I come in? Yeah. There's not that FaceTime, it's still over the camera, 
if we've all got to come in, maybe it should be the same day so we can actually collaborate. Is there a business meeting? I think that's going to drive even more quiet quitting as we've seen, you know, more of the companies start to say, okay, come back to the office, but not be able to articulate why. Yeah. Well, it, you know, I, I said it, it reminds me of the, the work-life balance. And I think some people are saying, well, yeah, you know, if I'm at home, you want me in the office. Well, we're, now I'm adding another, let's say, two hours two hours of travel time in, into the office and back home again, two hours that I used to be able to spend with my kids or, or my partner or, or working. You know, yeah. Or working. Honestly. You know, so I want those two hours back. Well, you know what I'm going to do? And if I do that twice a week, let, let's say that's four hours. I want those four hours back. Yeah. Well, you know what? That means at five o'clock, I'm not checking email or 6am. I'm not going to, to log in. And I'm not going to check or respond to anything. So they, they start setting their own work-life balance. Where before it seemed, you know, sure there was a push for work-life balance. You know, we don't want you to work evenings, you know, and do these kind of things. And some people still did it because they felt, you know, this is key. I know next week I won't have to do this. So I'll log in this evening. We'll get this done so that my colleagues are okay my boss is okay, I'm okay, we meet our deadline, and next week is, is fine, it'll be, in the, it's an easier week next week. Now it's, well, I don't care. I want my four hours yep. back, and I want my four hours back now, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to give you that, that dedication, that, um, uh, you know, that input that you're looking for me anymore. You know, forget it. Uh, so I'm, they, they call it quietly quitting. I would love to know where it came from. The, the, if you know out there, do some research for us. Yeah, I only came across it in the news. So, and, and Regina Phelps told me about it, but I don't think she told me where it came from either. It just appeared one day. So. You know, the other thing I think about work-life balance that I think it's missed with our, our colleagues too is nothing is ever perfectly imbalanced, right? Sometimes you get out of balance temporarily we have a big project due at the end of the month. We're releasing a product. We've dealt with managing a BC incident. Your life gets out of balance. And I think those good organizations recognize that's temporary and then give people the time to recover to get in balance. So again, you know, Rena Singh and I were talking about this. We had an interesting conversation if you've ever had to manage a business continuity incident over two or three days and it ends, are you expected to be at work first thing the next morning? And most people we spoke with said yes. And I found that interesting. Again, I just stayed awake for 72 hours straight for my employer. I did a good job. Do I, I really need to be at my desk at 9 a.m. the next morning? I can't sleep in until 1130 like, I think those good organizations see, okay, we had a product launch, we had a huge new project, a client pitch, a BC incident, that person's work-life balance has got out of balance. We're going to allow them to gradually move the scales back. And if that yeah. doesn't happen, then to Alex's point, then people will force take it and say, okay, live by the clock, die by the clock. You want me here every morning at 8? At 5.01, I'm gone. Yep. Like if you're going to manage one side, I'm going to manage 
manage the other. Yeah, and I've worked for good employers as, as well, and um, you know, done a large test or whatever the case may be, and you're there for 72 hours nonstop, uh, coordinating things, helping people out, um, and and the manager comes along. You know, I hope you're. And this is what my manager told me, uh, Phil. He said, I hope you're not coming into the office tomorrow. And I said, well, I thought I'd have to. And he goes, oh, hell no. <laughs> he goes, 72 hours straight. He goes, you're off tomorrow. He goes, uh, no way. You know, and, and I think, as you said, you know, they have to realize that, that, you know, that that's what's happening. And that's what's causing you know, the quiet quitting or, yeah. you know, or people to really take their, make their own work-life balance now rather than having an organization tell you what it is, people are starting to tell them what it is. Yeah, uh, I had, I, I had a, a similar situation. I worked for an organization. We traveled a lot on Sunday afternoons and Sunday evenings. So our boss at the time said, all right, well, you're already working Sunday. So Friday mornings, you know, make sure your expense reports are in, make sure you're caught up on your email, and then you're kind of good for the day. And then we got a new boss and he's like, no, I, I pay you to work Monday through Friday. And we said, okay. And what do you think then happened on the front end? We all stopped traveling Sunday afternoons and Sunday nights and said, okay, you, you want me there till Friday at five? Great. I'm flying Monday at 8 a.m. Yeah. So you can tell our clients instead of being at their office at 8 a.m. on Monday, I'll see them at noon. So sometimes these organizations like, okay, you, you want that piece off, you know, I think it's about that balance and recognizing the balance is always moving. And those, those thoughtful leaders, those good organizations recognize, recognize. Them. And knowing the crises and disasters can happen at any given time. You Correct. really got it. They have to be cognizant about that. Yeah. yeah. And when do tests and exercises happen? A lot of them happen evenings, late afternoons, yeah. weekends, quiet times. Yeah, quiet yeah. times. So um, in our industry, you know, we, that's just the way it goes. Yeah. So, but how many times have you done a test for the audience really quick before we roll out? Have you been a uh, part of a test or a failover on a Saturday and you're still expected to be there Monday? Yeah. But except for what Phil told me that time, just about everybody just else once. said yes. You yeah. got one so. example. <laughs> well, we've come to the end of our fourth hour. We have one more hour to go. One more hour to go. Hour four was brought to you by the Resilience Think Tank. Thank you so much. The Resilience Think Tank is dedicated to providing independent guidance and research to the risk and resilience industry. Thank you again.